Romans 8, verses 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for we, what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sonia. Let me, uh, let me pray, and then we'll think about the passage together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word as we begin a new series this morning uh, in uh, one of the most amazing chapters in the entire Bible. We pray that it, you would give us help in not only understanding it, but seeing how it applies to our lives right now, right here, uh, for each of us. Uh, no matter whether we feel this morning somewhat distant from you or whether you've blessed us mightily this week and we feel, uh, we feel a certain intimacy with you, we pray that this would be a significant time in each of our lives and would set us up well for the rest of this day and the coming week and this Advent season. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine if uh, over Thanksgiving dinner with your family and perhaps some friends in an effort to avoid the conversation broaching contentious subjects such as politics, vaccines, masks, and so on, you say, hey, everybody, do you know that Advent starts this Sunday? Anyone here know what Advent is all about? And my guess is that for many, maybe most of those that you might know, the answer would be along the lines of, well, yeah, it means that Christmas is getting closer, right? Or someone might even say, I knew it. I knew there was something else I had to buy this week besides all the food for Thanksgiving Day, an Advent calendar for my family. That's about as far as it goes. Incidentally, in case you weren't aware, you can pretty much get an Advent calendar for any interest or product these days. 
Through a brief perusal online this week, here's a very small selection of what is available to you this year from the top left going clockwise for the youngsters in your home. There's the Playmobil Advent Calendar. There's a Barbie Color Reveal Advent Calendar. For the Trekkie fans in your life, there's the Star Trek Borg Cube Advent Calendar. For the music lovers in your family, the Uncommon Goods Holiday Scratch-Off Advent Calendar Playlist. And then if you've more money than sense, there's the Food 52 times Stone Hollow Farmstead Advent Calendar. Original price $275, but for you right now, $220. (laughs) And the amazing thing is, of course, with all of them, there's not a Mary or Joseph or baby Jesus anywhere in sight. But lest we might start to feel a little smug that while those around us have missed the meaning of Advent while here in the church we get it, we need to recognize that that's not necessarily the case. In his letter uh, from the editor in the new Daily Prayer Project Advent edition, which is on the back table, Joel Littlepage points out that historically the season of Advent in the church had a shape and a purpose that is not so well understood or appreciated today. Advent was not intended to simply be the run-up to Christmas. It was rather designed to be the season that looked forward not so much to the birth of the baby Jesus, but to the second coming of Jesus. Advent locates the church, therefore, between these two markers of Jesus' first coming and second coming in this time between, as Fleming Rutledge calls it in her book on Advent, as we wait, await Jesus' return in glory to judge the living and the dead and to usher in the new heaven and the new earth. And as such, in this time between, in this period when we look forward to everything one day being put right, Advent actually begins and situates us in a present darkness of a world where everything isn't right. And that's not news to us. That should be obvious to all of us as we take a glance into the news or into our neighborhoods or into our own lives with all of life's loose ends and fears and mistakes and hurts and loss and heartache, that there is unfinished business in this world on a cosmic scale. That Advent begins in the dark. But at the same time, Advent is a season brimming with joyful expectation for the one who said, behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am coming soon. Revelation 21, 22 made, was uh, part of the benediction this morning in today's daily prayer project. And so Joel Littlepage quotes Fleming Rutledge from that same book on Advent when she says this, the disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of the future glory that is yet to come, and in this Advent tension, the church lives its life. So that Advent actually invites us to to stare into the face of the brokenness of life in this present world, but holding that in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is to come when Jesus returns. And because of all that, over the next four weeks, we're going to again expand our practice of Advent conspiracy that we'll hear more about later in the service to conspire together against the creeping commercialism 
and secularization of this season by seeking to recover the historic discipline during Advent of looking forward in the midst of the present darkness to the return of Jesus. And that will be reflected in a number of different ways. It's reflected in a a different focus each week to the traditional categories we're perhaps used to as we light the Advent candles. It will mean that many of our hymns will have themes of watching and waiting for the coming king. And in the sermons, it means we're going to look at a chapter in the Bible that isn't perhaps traditionally connected with Advent, but which actually fits beautifully with the themes I just highlighted. That is, we're going to spend the next four Sundays in Romans chapter 8. Back in October, a few EPC pastor friends and I decided we would all preach on Romans 8 through Advent, and in preparation, we met up for 24 hours up in Simsbury, Connecticut, to work through the chapter together. I actually have never participated before in a sort of formal group setting sermon series preparation, uh, but I have to say it was, it was actually a really rich experience. I really enjoyed it. So to Matt Blazer, Brian Fitzgerald, and, and Tracy Johnson, if you're watching, thanks for uh, all your help with this chapter. Of course, you're not watching because you're preaching on it right now too, but maybe they'll watch it later. But Romans 8 isn't just for preachers like me and my friends. Romans 8 is worth the attention of all of us. In his uh, classic book, Knowing God, that one of our growth groups is reading right now, J.I. Packer wrote this, Paul's letter to Rome is the high peak of scripture, and as Romans is the high peak of the Bible, so chapter 8 is the high peak, the Everest of Romans. That's a pretty strong endorsement from one of the theological giants of the 20th century, so we're going to climb this this, uh, peak this Advent. But before we start that ascent, let me just say something to some of you who are starting to wonder, because I can read your minds right now, that with all this talk of Advent beginning in the dark and a series on Romans 8 leading up to Christmas, that I'm simply trying to make the case of us being Scrooge-like and bah humbugs for the month of December. I promise you that's not the case. What I am suggesting is that we seek, as the Fleming Rutledge quote in the bulletin highlights today, to for us to lead something of a double life this month. That outside the doors of this building, by all means, we enter into all the festivities of the Christmas season. If you've already put up your tree and decorated it, I'm not suggesting you take it down because I know you wouldn't anyway. But we can, we can do the wreaths, the lights, the carols, the holly, the presents, like the best of the rest. But at the same time, even as the season gets more and more festive outside as a church, I'm suggesting that we conspire together to be convicted by some inside truths. That Sunday by Sunday, as we refuse the the easy comforts of the commercial Christmas, we just think differently. I'm inviting us to join together in a place where we might observe that Advent does begin in the dark and then leads us to light. And since we're going to begin in the dark, we're not actually going to start at the beginning of Romans 8 today, but in the middle. Romans 8 famously begins with no condemnation from God. It ends with no separation from God. But in this middle section of the chapter, Paul recognizes that while those bookends herald great joy and victory for the Christian, in the course of life in this world, there's another sobering reality. Paul refers to it in verse 18 as the sufferings of this present time. 
These are sufferings we're going to see which lead to groans, but not just human groans. There are three groaners here in this passage, three witnesses to the reality of Advent, and we're going to give our attention to each groaning witness here. And as we do, we'll see this. Here's today's sermon in a sentence, that the groans in this Advent darkness are characterized by two things, frustration and hope. We'll think about this in three, uh, with three points today. They're very easy to remember. Point one, witness one. Point two, witness two. Point three, witness three. You got that? Groans in this Advent darkness are characterized by two things, frustration and hope. So our first witness comes to the stand, and it's the whole created order. Look with me at verses 18 to 22. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Who's the first groaner? It's the whole creation who Paul says has been groaning together. It's groaning, first of all, because it's been subjected to futility and in bondage to corruption, he says. And notice that its futility is not haphazard or random or accidental. The creation was subjected to futility not by its own choice, but because of him who subjected it. Who's the him there? It's actually God. God subjected the whole created order to futility, and that futility is a large part of the reason it's groaning. Now, what Paul writes here might raise a question or two in some of our minds, because we think to ourselves, why on earth would God subject the whole created order, all that he himself had so wonderfully created, why would he subject that to futility? And the answer to that comes in the opening chapters of the Bible. I think Paul here is careful not to just write of the world, but writes of creation, because he wants to cast our minds back to Genesis 1 to 3. Genesis 1 1 reads, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. As you read on through the rest of Genesis 1, you find that with each day of creation, God completes the tasks at hand, and then he declares every, everything each day good. On day six, he creates humanity. He makes man and woman. And at the end of that day, he doesn't just describe it as good. He describes it as very good. So God creates this perfect world, a world of beauty and flourishing and provision that has everything that we could ever want, everything we could ever need. And in the midst of all that bounty and goodness and freedom, God gives Adam and Eve one prohibition. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will surely die. And no prizes for guessing what they do. In an act of pride and defiance and foolishness, Adam and Eve decide to ignore God's command. They do what they want. They eat from the forbidden tree. And the consequences, as warned by God, were devastating. At the end of Genesis 3, the whole created order is brought under a curse by God himself. That as a result of that act of rebellion... They find themselves alienated from the God who created them, who sustained them, who loved them, who cared for them. 
But in Genesis 3, we discover that this alienation from God isn't an isolated condition. That is to say, God explains to Adam that this spiritual alienation would lead also to a psychological alienation, such that we suffer from things like anger and depression and bitterness and anxiety. That this spiritual alienation from God would also lead to a social alienation, whereby we have wars and racism and marital breakdowns and crime and abortion and genocide and sexism and violence. And as a result of this spiritual alienation, the whole created order was also cursed, leading to a physical alienation such that we live in a world of poverty and famine and hunger and environmental disasters and new COVID variants and death. So as Paul puts it, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And so creation groans. But creation's groans note are not only because it's been subjected to futility and in bondage to corruption. These groans we see here are not only groans of frustration, they're also groans of hope. Advent begins in the dark, but it sees light in the future. Look at how Paul expresses this double reason for the groans of frustration and hope. Paul tells us that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. As I imagine was the case for many of you fathers, I was present at the birth of both of our children, although the joke in our family is that I wasn't the most helpful at certain points of those occasions. For example, with Fiona's birth, Tara's due date was imminent. Uh, she'd had her hospital bag packed for days. And then she announced late one evening, you know, I think it's time for us to go to the hospital, to which I replied, but what should I wear? <laughs> When Duncan was born, we were, we were living in Northern Ireland at the time. The practice of hospital staff in Northern Ireland at that time was to bring a nice hot cooked meal to the delivery room in case the mother in labor was hungry. Well, apparently the last thing that Tara wanted in the midst of labor was a hot roast dinner with all the aromas emanating from it. But when she declined it, I quickly said, I'll take it. <laughs> and proceeded between pushes to nip into the corner of the room to have a few mouthfuls. I've never lived these things down since. But all, all of which is to say, I obviously have not experienced the pains of childbirth, but I have witnessed them. And there's pain for sure. Many of you know this. But at the same time, the groans in the maternity ward are very different to the groans, for example, in an oncology ward where patients are dealing with cancer. The groans in an ecology ward are just simply because life is hard. Life is difficult and it really, really hurts. But the groans in the maternity ward are different, not because the pain is necessarily any less, but because as well as the pain, there's hope. There's anticipation of what will, will follow the pain. The pain of childbirth marks not an end, but a beginning. And that's Paul's point here, that in the midst of the frustration and its bondage to corruption, creation waits with eager longing, Paul says, for the revealing of the sons of God, or as J.B. Phillips wonderfully puts it in his New Testament translation, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. 
Creation will be like an orchestra that finally gets its conductor back, creating perfect harmony in that orchestra. But until that time, it endures the dissonant chords of frustration and bondage, but it endures them in hope of a fabulous future. Here's our first witness, the whole created order. Paul mentions the second groaning witness in verses 21, to, sorry, in verse 23, and it's us. It's all Christians. Look at verses 23 to 25. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. As Christians, we groan because Paul says we're, we're, in a sense, only half saved. We're only half redeemed so that we still, in this world and in this life, experience suffering and physical death. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, which, which is, is a fabulous thing, but we, we still don't have the full fruits. We're still waiting eagerly for adoption as sons. Now, what's interesting with that is that just a few verses earlier, Paul states this in verse 15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And you read those statements back to back and you feel like saying, well, which is it, Paul? Have I already been adopted or am I still waiting for my adoption? To which Paul says, of course, yes, it's both. That as Christians, we're caught between these two realities. We live in what theologians call this already but not yet world, where we have already received something wonderful in Christ, the first fruits of the Spirit, the adoption into the family of God, but we're not yet able to fully enjoy it. And that's what makes us join with creation to groan inwardly. We, we groan because we, we know with creation something of the futility and the bondage of our present existence. And part of our groaning is because of our physical frailty and our mortality. That as we grow older, there are daily aches and pains that remind us of parts of our body we were completely oblivious to in our younger, healthier years. Can I get an amen? amen. But it's not, just our, it's not just our fragile bodies that make us groan, but also our sinful natures that hinder us from from living as God wants us to. And so, so we groan, longing for our sinful natures to be healed, longing for our physical bodies to be transformed. Paul says in verse 23 that we wait for that reality eagerly. And then in verse 25, he says this, but if we wait for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So we wait eagerly and we wait patiently because we know that one day God will give us a resurrection body. And so we wait with creation patiently for that day when all things will be made new. Notice that Paul uses these concepts of hope and waiting interchangeably in this chapter, because to wait patiently as Christians is to live in hope. And to live in hope as Christians is to wait patiently. Because you see, this is a definite hope. It's not mere wishful thinking. It's a definite hope of something that's definitely going to happen. It's just, it's not here yet. It's like hoping for Christmas. 
No, no matter what time of the year you might start hoping for Christmas, if you wait long enough, eventually it will be Christmas. It's not a, wouldn't it be nice if there's a Christmas this year, along the lines of, wouldn't it be nice if we have a mild winter? I'm hoping for a very mild winter. No, it's a definite thing. Just like our full adoption as sons and daughters of God and the redemption of our bodies. Let me just say a couple of brief things about our groaning before we move to our third witness. First of all, the groaning Paul is talking about here is not grumbling. Billy Graham in his autobiography recounted the experience of arriving at his first college. The first thing Graham remembered upon his arrival was a huge sign on the wall of his dormitory buildings. In massive letters, the sign said, no griping permitted. That's solid biblical advice taken from the apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians where he writes, do all things without grumbling or disputing, Philippians 2.14. All things without grumbling. So in the Christian's life, there's not to be whining and complaining about life, because actually at the root of such grumbling is a sign of unbelief. It's a lack of trust in God. But that's different to what Paul's talking about here about groaning, because the groaning that Paul's writing about here is not only an acknowledgement of the frustrations of this life, that life can be very difficult, it's also a groaning that's looking forward in anticipation and hope of a glorious future when all things will be made new. So groaning isn't grumbling. Secondly, Christian groaning is deeper groaning. Groaning is deeper in the life of the Christian, not only because having the first fruits of the Spirit, we have a heightened awareness of this future hope, but also because when someone becomes a Christian, he or she grows in their emotional capacities because God's, God's regenerating every single part of your being so that the gospel increases our humanity. The gospel increases our ability to feel, our experience of life. Our senses are deepened. They're not dulled. So when the Spirit of Jesus enters your life, you're equipped to love deeper, to care deeper, but also to feel deeper. As Christians, our emotions are deepened, which means that our groaning is deepened too. The second groaning witness is every Christian. Which brings us to our third and final groaning witness, and perhaps the most surprising of the three. Look at verses 26 to 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The third witness is the Holy Spirit himself, who groans with us in our weakness. That as the Spirit looks at your spiritual life and my spiritual life, listens to our prayers, sees how we're, how we're doing in general, the word that comes to his mind is weakness. And so in his kindness, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, we do need to acknowledge that this verse has been interpreted more than one way. The question is often asked, well, is Paul saying that the Spirit groans or we're groaning? And you'll find commentators who go both ways. But I have a hunch that Paul left it somewhat ambiguous, not so that we would end up in ceaseless debates about which way is correct, but to encourage us 
to see that as we groan in frustration and hope, the Spirit is right there with us, identifying with that frustration, identifying with that hope, and joining in some way with our groans as, as he intercedes for us in this time between. He's there to help us in our weaknesses, Paul says in verse 26. The word Paul uses there for help actually joins two prepositions to the main, the main verb. So literally, it's with, for, help. The Spirit helps us in our weakness by praying with us and for us. So what exactly is with, for, help? Some of you know Chris and Abby Quimby moved house this week. They're praising God that it's pretty much done. They moved from Union Street down to Magnolia Place. They're now living close to Tara and me. But imagine, I don't know if this happened, Chris, but well, imagine that Chris was struggling with a table on his own, getting it from the truck into the house. He has to stop because he can't bear the load on his own. Jack or Dylan, who were helping them this week, come and say, let me take hold of one end of it, of the table. So instead of one person having to carry the, the whole burden himself, the second person comes along to help carry the load, which was too much for the one person acting alone. That's the, the effect of, of the verb that Paul's using here. That's something like what the Spirit does when he comes to us to help us in prayer, not leaving us alone in our prayers. He enters into our groans in response to the frustration and hope we experience in this time between. So we've heard the testimony of three witnesses to the dual reality of frustration and hope in this world, testimony of the whole created order, the testimony of every Christian, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. What are we to do in response to these testimonies? Let me suggest two things taken from what Paul writes at the beginning of this passage and also near the end. And the two things are this, consider and know. Consider and know. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Consider. Paul is the consummate comparison shopper here. I imagine some of you seasoned shoppers have already completed some expert comparison shopping to find the best prices for those items you're buying as Christmas gifts. You've scoured the internet. You've maybe clipped some online coupons. You're fairly confident that you got the gift at the best possible price. Paul indicates here that one of the best ways to deal with the frustrations and the futility that accompanies this time between is to do some comparison shopping between your sufferings now and the glory that will come in the next world. Because he says, when you do that, you discover there is no comparison. They're not even in the same price range. The sufferings that can feel like a lethal weight around our necks now are weightless in comparison to the promised eternal load of glory. The key now for Paul, he says, when he suffered any kind of affliction was not to focus his thoughts on how heavy the affliction was, but on how weighty the future glory would be in comparison. That seen in the light of the coming glory of the new heaven and the new earth, our present troubles are trivial. They're like ephemeral flea bites that in comparison with the tons of glory that await the believer. 
They are like insignificant dust on the weighing scales. So do the comparison shopping in the midst of your suffering. Consider. Consider. But secondly, no. Verse 26, Paul says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, such is our weakness. But here in verse 28, and perhaps one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible, he reminds us of what we do know. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We know. Here's what we know. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. It really is a stupendous verse, but we need to be careful that we don't make it into what has been called kitchen verse theology. Kitchen verse theology is when we take a Bible verse out of context and we maybe frame it on a plaque or with some calligraphy or some other way. We stick it above the kitchen sink or some other significant location in our home or office with the idea that when we see it, if we just say it over and over again as a sort of Christian mantra, it will somehow start working for us. And with this verse, by working for us, we think that God working for our good will mean an abundance of sunshine in our lives and an absence of storms. And that's the last thing in Paul's mind as he writes this. Because Paul actually is really just restating verse 18, the consider verse, but with different things. He says all things. That's not just the good things, but even the sufferings of this present time. Work together for good. That is, work towards the glory that is to be revealed to us. All things, yes, even the frustrations, even the futility, even the bondage of our corruption, work together to bring us to that great and certain hope in the future. And that, my friends, is one of the most amazing and astonishing promises you'll ever hear. If God is working in all things, then it means ultimately there are no accidents in your life. There are no irredeemable situations in the life of the Christian. It means you can chill. It means you can relax because you're not in the grip of fate. The universe is not a mechanism run by blind chance. The God who loves you is in absolute control of everything. Friends, the groans in this Advent darkness are characterized by two things. They're characterized by frustration, but also by hope. So how do we respond? Consider, consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is be, to be revealed to us. And know, know that for those who love God, all things, all things, all things work together for good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this season. We thank you for how it reminds us that we are in this time between Jesus' first coming and second coming. We thank you for this reminder that it is a, a reality of both frustration and hope. And that you have given us the resources to endure the frustrations with our eyes fixed on that future hope. 
So help us to consider and help us to know. And may that make a difference even in this coming week in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.